Please open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 37. And we are this morning going to look at the entire chapter of 37. If you're new to the Bible, the large numbers are the chapter divisions. The small numbers are the verse divisions. And we are going to look at the entire chapter of 37, which sounds like a lot. And it is a good bit, but it is all one story, one narrative, beginning this story about a man named Joseph. Well, before we begin looking in God's word, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, may the meditation of our hearts and the words of my lips as I speak be glorifying to you, our God and our Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't know about you, but when many of you who are my age or older, you can remember a time when you didn't have cell phones. No one had cell phones. When you took a trip, you would tell someone maybe the day before what time you had planned to leave that day and you got there when they when you got there and you had some expectation of when you would get there and they might have some expectation of when they would get there and i remember as a kid when my grandparents would come into our home they would come from ohio they would travel over we would know okay they would leave at a certain time and 7 8 hours later they would be at our house and so we lived in a fairly quiet, small town, not too far away. We lived in town, and so we lived in a row home on a, not a busy street, but on a street in which people drove by frequently. And my brother and my sisters and I, when we were especially young, we would stand or sit close to the window, and we would watch the cars as they would come by, and we were looking for my grandparents' car. Nowadays, you don't need that. You've got GPS. You've got phones. You can, 15 minutes away, we're going to be there soon. You've lost so much, kids, of waiting, you know, for hours on end, looking out and staring at windows. Think of what you could be doing. But, uh, you know, we, we waited, and we would watch the cars go by. Is that them? Is that them? Is that them? And invariably, one of those cars would be them. Genesis has that same, that same expectation. If you'll remember, back in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates a perfect world. A place where his creation relates to him perfectly. And in that perfect world. He creates a perfect place, the Garden of Eden. And in that perfect place, he creates man and woman, and he puts them there. And they relate to each other wonderfully, perfectly. And they relate to him, the Lord, perfectly. But very soon, God had given them one, one law, one rule by which they were to live by, to show that they were submissive to him as their creator. We're not sure how long, but very soon, they They disobey. They think they know better. They go their own way. They do what you and I do so often. And as a result, the world is plunged into sin and ruin and decay. But God made a promise within that judgment. He makes a promise in Genesis chapter 3. 
that he is going to send a deliverer, one who is going to defeat Satan and rescue and redeem, who is going to deliver God's people. And from that point on, there is this almost expectation as we're reading through Genesis that we need to be like a child standing at the window. Is that them? Are they here yet? So Genesis chapter 4, Eve has a son named Seth. And the very first thing she says after this is, I have gotten a man child, I've gotten a man, I've gotten a child from the Lord, a son from the Lord. Here, maybe this one is the deliverer. But Seth is killed, murdered by his brother, Cain. I'm sorry, Abel is murdered by his brother, Cain. And then Seth comes along, and perhaps this is the one. And then son after son after son, we are told in Genesis 5, dies. And then comes along Noah. And Noah is going to be one who is going to rescue the world from the curse. Perhaps he is that deliverer. But he himself fails. Perhaps it's Abraham, but Abraham fails. Perhaps it's Isaac, but Isaac falls short. Jacob, we know Jacob can't be it. Jacob is, is just a ragamuffin. He is, he's, a, he's a bit skeevy. Not him either. And now we get to Joseph. And Moses ends the story of Genesis by focusing on this person of Joseph. And he, he writes this story in such a way to, to help us to see in Joseph a picture of what the deliverer is going to be like. You and I, reading the Bible back, we know Joseph is not that deliverer. But at the time, it was not clear. And it's fascinating how Moses writes the story of Joseph. In all of the other narratives, he gives us some indication of what Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, what they are thinking or feeling. But in the story of Joseph, we don't get that. In the story of Joseph, we are told only what his dad or his brothers think and feel. And it's almost as if what Moses wants us to realize is you and I, when we read the book of Genesis and when we come to Joseph, he doesn't want us to sympathize with Joseph. He doesn't want us to put ourselves in the place of Joseph as if when we read it, you and I are Joseph. Moses wants you and I to realize that you and I are not in the place of the deliverer. We are in the place of the ones who need to be delivered. Which is why often when we read the story of Joseph, we come away more sympathetic with Joseph's brothers than we do with Joseph himself. So on one level, we come to Joseph with hope. We come to him looking to be that deliverer, knowing that that deliverer is yet to come. That deliverer is ultimately going to be none other than than Jesus himself, which is why in the New Testament there are a number of allusions to Joseph. As if they are trying to say, hey, this one back there was himself an excellent picture of the deliverer that you and I need. 
So not everything in Joseph's life is meant to be compared to Christ, but there are significant overlaps and points of comparison, and we're going to to look at those. But Joseph's story is is one of of reversals. In this story, in this part of the story, we see Joseph going from privilege to being property. From privilege to property. Joseph goes from being someone who is given a place of high honor to being someone who is bought and sold as if he is property himself. This is not a story of rags to riches, at least at this part, as much as it is from riches to rags. So what we see as we enter into Joseph is this Tensions begin to rise in the family. Tensions that we have already seen present. We read in verse 2, and that's where we're starting in chapter 37, verse 2. This is the history, or this is the gener- these are the generations of Jacob. That is a, a signal, a mile marker, so to speak, in the book of Genesis. And this is the last mile marker. There are 14 chapters left, but this is the last big mile marker in the book of Genesis, setting us up for this final section. But he writes, this is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And you'll remember, perhaps, that Jacob, Joseph's dad, had four wives. And his mother, Joseph's mother, was Jacob's favorite wife, but Joseph is himself one of the youngest sons. And so Joseph is out, we are told, he's 17 years old, out shepherding the sheep along with the sons of two of the mothers of his father, Zilpah and Bilhah, which that must have gotten confusing What a tragic name to name your child, Zilpah or Bilhah, right? Our boys were chuckling last night as we were talking about this as a a family. Uh, But Zilpah and Bilhah, their sons are out working with Joseph. And we read Joseph brings a bad report of them to his father. And on one level, you can say, most of us are thinking, what's going on in Joseph's mind? He is a, he's tattletaling here as a 17-year-old. He's bringing a bad report about his brothers. Growing up, it would have been said, snitches get stitches. Joseph was going to get hurt. He deserved what's coming to him. And it could be that this is showing that Joseph has poor character, that he is a nothing but ambitiously trying to raise his stock, so to speak, in his family. He's got 11, I'm sorry, 10 older brothers And perhaps he is proud, perhaps he is arrogant, perhaps he simply wants to be the golden child. That all could be true. Moses doesn't give us a window into Joseph's thought. But I think it's equally true for us to say Joseph's brothers perhaps deserve this. Moses could be signaling to us that Joseph is himself a, a responsible worker. Unlike his brothers, we've already seen that Joseph's brothers are not exactly good guys. Reuben, we are told earlier, in another earlier chapter, he has slept with one of his stepmoms. 
two of the other sons have literally slaughtered a city. And other sons went in to join them in claiming the victory spoils and kidnapping people. Not exactly are these guys of good character. So Joseph is out working with them. He sees something that they are doing, doing wrong. Brings a bad report of them to their dad. And it portrays him, it seems, it could be portraying him as a man of good character. A man who, even at the age of 17 years old, is working hard. Who is responsible and trustworthy. But either way, Joseph is, by reporting on his brothers, this puts him on the side of management, doesn't it? I mean, this, this immediately, for all the other workers, it, it lets them know you can't mess around with Joseph present. He's going to tell on you. He is going to report you. You can imagine the effect that had on the other brothers, how much they disliked him for that. But that's not really what angers them the most at Joseph. We read on verses 3 and 4. Verse 3. Now Israel loved Israel being Jacob. The Lord changed Jacob's name to Israel. So Israel, Jacob, same person. And we are told Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a tunic of many colors. So what we have here is Jacob, Israel, doing the very thing that his dad did to him. Do you remember Jacob and Esau as their boys? His father, Isaac, who did he favor? Esau. And why did Isaac favor Esau? Simply because Esau made some really good stew. What a, what a terrible reason to favor one child so much above the other. Simply because they made a dish that you liked. How superficial is that? And yet we see Jacob doing the same thing to his sons, don't we? What is the reason? Because he was the son of his old age. What a superficial, cheap reason. And and what does Israel do for his son? He makes him a a coat of many colors. And there are different ways you can translate this. But it is most likely that what we have here is a very ornate coat. Perhaps lined with, with gold trim or something more significant. It's not that all the other brothers had clothing that was that was bland. It's that what we had with Joseph is that his clothing, it signified his favor in the family. There's one other place in the, in the Old Testament where we find this kind of description used for a piece of clothing. And it is later on to describe the garment of, a, of the children of a king, one of the Davidic kings. This is a royal robe. A royal robe. A richly ornamented robe. And as a result, we are told, his brothers, verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably or kindly to him. But it only gets worse for Joseph. 
Joseph has a pair of dreams that we read about in the coming verses. Follow along in verses 5 to verse 9. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose, standing upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around, and they bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. What we have here is... With these dreams, one of the things that we need to understand is that these dreams are a clear indication of God's will and word to Joseph. But there is a big difference in the way God is talking and communicating with Joseph and the way he has talked before. Before, he would, he would meet with Abraham. He would send an angel, or he himself would be manifested in the flesh and talk with him. He might talk with him in a, in a vision or dream. There would be direct communication. But now, we're not told of any direct communication. Now we are told simply, Joseph has a dream. And it is clear to Joseph Somehow the Lord is working, revealing it to him that this is no ordinary dream. This is indeed a word from God. And Joseph could be, we could read this negatively, Joseph being proud, pleased with himself, arrogant, ambitious, tells it to his brothers. And perhaps, knowing that Joseph is a sinner like you and I, perhaps we can understand that, yes, that that might be it. There is another way for us to look at it, that Joseph is simply telling to his family, excited about what God has told him. Who else is he going to tell? I'll tell my family what God has revealed to me. And the upshot is that they hate him even more. But it gets worse. That's, that's dream one. To make it even more certain, that is to reinforce that this is from God and this isn't some dream that J- Joseph has cooked up. The Lord gives him another dream. Verse 9. Then he dreamed still another dream, and he told it to his brothers, and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So if one is the sheaves, the sheaves of wheat that they gather up, and the brothers' sheaves bowing down to Joseph, this one, it's almost as if Joseph is now being pictured the king of creation. He is the ruler over the earth and now the stars. And his brothers, their stars, the moon and the sun, bow down to Joseph. And you can see how it is all received. It is not received well. Verse 10, Jacob's, or Jacob, Joseph's father, speaks up. So he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I, your brothers indeed, come to bow down to the earth before you? It's almost as if he's saying, son, I love you. You know I love you more than all the rest. Perhaps I'm, I want you to be the one who's going to inherit all the birthright and the promises of God. You are the one whom I would choose. But even this dream, this is, this is too much. This, you've gone insane, son. You are, you are 
filled with yourself. You are arrogant. We're told in verse 11, his brothers envied him. But then we read these words, but his father kept the matter in mind. So even as his dad rebukes him for giving and telling this dream, his dad thinks about it. His dad takes it to heart. His dad keeps it and meditates on it. Does this sound like anyone else to you in the Bible? It sounds like Mary, doesn't it? Luke, I think, he harks back to this. And twice in Luke chapter 2, verse 19 and 51, he tells us that Mary, in response to things that Jesus says or things that are said about Jesus... She keeps them and treasures them up in her mind or in her heart. It's almost as if Luke is saying, look, you saw how God worked in in Joseph. You saw how Joseph is a picture of the deliverer to come. Let me show you who that deliverer really is. The response of Joseph's brothers is a lot less kind. Verse 4, Joseph's brothers hated him. They could not speak kindly to him. Verse 5, they hate him even more. Verse 8, they hate, him, they hate him even more because of his dreams and his words. In verse 11, and his brothers envied him. Here it's almost as if their hate has now turned inward, turned bitter, and it has pierced their heart. It, is, it spoils everything. Anything Joseph does, they hate him for. They are jealous of. They are envious of. And we are going to see the fruit of envy. Envy is not a a safe sin, so to speak. Jealousy of someone else is not something that we can simply pass over. For in the life of Joseph, it is what drove his brothers to do what you and I would consider unconscionable. Joseph's brothers hate Joseph. They are envious of him because because of not only their father's love for Joseph, but now because God has revealed to Joseph that God had chosen him to be the one through whom deliverance would come. He would be the one to reign. And they found it all so offensive. You see this in verse 20. After his brothers have plotted his demise, they say, we shall see now what will become of his dreams. They're they're desperate to undermine the word of God. So whatever Joseph's motives, whatever Joseph's thoughts, whatever Moses unpacks, Moses unpacks the hatred that's aimed at him. Brother and sister, we can be sure of this as well, that if we do not take God's word seriously, if we do not rest our lives upon it, the way Joseph does, the way his brothers fail to do, it will get us in trouble. This is why Jesus writes, or Jesus says in John 8, 45, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe in me. Joseph's brothers were given God's word. They were given the truth of what would come. 
And rather than responding, thankful for the revelation, they respond with arrogance, seeking to undermine it, seeking to put an end to it. Because they they were told the truth, they did not believe in him. And this passage, this whole story is going to warn us as believers, as Christians, as followers and disciples of Christ, it's going to warn us to calibrate our expectations. Joseph may have been the most winsome and likable guy. Perhaps when he tells his brothers, he tries to phrase it in such a way that it wouldn't receive their hatred, their scorn, their mockery. But the end result is the same. He is hated. He is sold. The word we believe, the word we live by, the word of God that we declare to the world, it is not welcome, it is not wanted, it is not rewarded. Following Jesus is its own reward. And it will mean that if we follow Christ, we will be rewarded with Christ. With a certain hope and full assurance of God's joy eternally in Him. But following Jesus will earn us the scorn and the hatred of the world. We will be considered narrow-minded. We will be called bigots. We will be called all sorts of things. We will be accused of hate speech. And our beliefs, they will cost us. They will cost us relationships. They will cost us at work. But better for them to cost us everything in this world than we lose the next. And this shouldn't surprise us because Christ himself has endured this own cost, just as Joseph does. And we see what happens next. Driven by hatred, driven by envy, Joseph's brothers do indeed sell him into slavery. That's not their initial plan. We read in verse 12, Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And you will remember the last things that the last thing that we read about Shechem was not pleasant that is where Levi and Simeon went and and killed that town that is where they incurred so many problems this is a red flag they're at Shechem that is about 60 miles away from where their homestead is about three days journey two two and a half three days journey for Joseph to get there Joseph goes. He says, he responds to his father, here I am, I'm willing to go, dad. Verse 14. And he said to him, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him. We're not told who this guy is, but he's just a certain man found him. And he said to him, what are you seeking? So he said, I seek my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said to him, they have departed from here. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan, which is about 15 plus miles away, further north and to the west. 
So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. Then we shall see what becomes of his dreams. But Reuben, this is the oldest son. Reuben hears it. And he delivered Joseph out of the brother's hands. And he said, let us not kill him. Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Cast him instead, cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness. Do not lay a hand on him. We read that that Reuben's intentions is that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. That is what Reuben desires. The problem is Reuben doesn't stick around. We're not told what he goes and does. Perhaps he's he's going off to, to tend to the sheep. But it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices, balm and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? What benefit, what what gain can we get from this? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother in our flesh. And his brothers listened. And the Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed, Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, an act of grief, put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him into Egypt. This is Joseph. They had sold him in, it sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. So we've got Joseph's brothers tending sheep near Shechem. They move to Dothan, and all of that is, it will become significant later on in just a moment as we see. But they see Joseph coming to them, coming to check up on them once again. I'm sure this scene has probably repeated itself many times in their lives. Again and again, they've seen Joseph being sent by his dad, coming in. He's not out 
in the heat of the day. He's not working hard. He's not doing anything. He's coming with his nice coat, riding some animal. They see him from afar. They recognize the coat that he's wearing. And they're talking amongst themselves. And initially it's, let's kill him. One brother, Reuben, sticks up for it. He doesn't stick around long to, to prevent it, but they, they decide to throw him into a pit with no water. And the, the reasoning behind that is almost as if they are going to, to watch him starve to death. No food, no drink. Pits in that time this would have hit, they, they would created almost like a, a bottle shape, narrow at the top, but larger at the bottom. Joseph is thrown down into this pit. Reuben, cowardly leader, walks away. And Joseph is sold for 20 pieces of silver, very much like our Savior, who would later be sold for silver as well. Much more interesting is just as Judas is the one who sells Christ, so it is also Judah. Those two names are extraordinarily similar. So it is Judah who is the one who leads the way in the selling of Joseph. And when Jacob finds out what's been done, or rather he finds out what he thinks has been done, the story that's been told, he grieves. As only a parent who has lost a child, lost their favorite child, can understand. Refuses to be consoled. And the end of the chapter leaves us in a rather anticlimactic way. Joseph has been sold to Egypt, sold in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guard. You know, on one level, commentators have suggested that perhaps even though he is a slave in Egypt, Joseph is better off in Egypt than he was with his family. And certainly that might be true. But I doubt at the time Joseph was very, was able to see that so clearly. And we are not given any window in this chapter, in, in this moment, what Joseph thinks or feels. We can surmise that he is probably far from happy. He had gone sitting at the place of privilege, at the seat of honor around his father's table. And now he is tied and walking hundreds of miles, dragged behind a a caravan, eating their dust along the way in that dry climate, being sold as property into a home and into a family and into a culture that he doesn't know. He is alone. And of course, you and I know, if you've read the story of Joseph, that that downward trajectory is going to continue to spiral further and further down. And it appears at the end of this chapter that the plan of God for Joseph has failed, doesn't it? Joseph, you will reign. Your brothers and your family, they will come. They will bow themselves down to you. To the human eye, it appears that God is, his plans have failed, that God himself is invisible. 
That is, we read through this chapter, and I don't know if you noticed, there is not one mention of God. He is not, he is not named, nor his actions are hinted at. It is as if Moses wants us to feel as, to feel as, as Joseph may have felt. She gets it. Imagine Joseph at that time. The anger, the anguish, the fear. He doesn't know where his next meal is coming from. He doesn't know what the next day will bring him, the next task. His life is not his own. He is merely owned. Where is God? Where is God? Where has he been this whole time? I think Moses writes it in this way. Because he wants us to to understand that there are going to be times in which it feels and it appears that God is not present. That God's plan and purposes and promises to us have, have failed, have faltered, and have fallen down. Where life itself has fallen apart. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what this passage teaches us is that God is still providentially active and ruling over everything. In the last half of the chapter, we see this. The brothers go to Shechem, 60 miles away, far enough away from home so that they can have some liberty, do what they want. Sheep are able to spread out, find good grazing, certainly. But then they they go to Dothan. And Dothan is to the north and to the west. It is alongside a a major trade route that ran from east and north. And it connects and goes down alongside the Mediterranean, down towards Egypt. Had the brothers decided to go anywhere else, they would not have met this caravan More than this, Joseph gets there at the right time. Certainly at the right time to be thrown into the pit. But that day, that caravan driving past happens to be at that moment where Reuben has gone off. Joseph arrives, having, having met a stranger in a field who happened to know where his brothers were going. And in it all, we see God working, God directing. And rather knowing that, or rather seeing that God's plans have failed, yet we see God through his providential rule and reign guiding things so that his purposes and his plans and his promises come true. Not one fails. Brothers and sisters, just as we can only see the stars most clearly under the cover of darkness, so it is then that we see God when life itself 
appears dark. There are some things about God that we will not see unless we endure enormous trials. There are some perfections we will never, ever get a hint of in our life. If we are never allowed to wander through the valley of the shadow of death. So there in the hospital room, there in the doctor's office, there in our uncertainty, there in our living rooms, there when everything seems to be crashing down, crashing down there in our anxiety, there in our fear, there in our doubt, there in our, our broken relationships, there in our empty bank accounts, there is when God meets us, there is when God is leading us. When loneliness creeps in. And when we are reminded again and again of how far we fall short of God and what he calls us to. We're reminded of the grace, the mighty grace of God, which does not stop and does not quit. We do not judge the Lord. We must not, cannot judge the Lord by what we see but by what he has said. Joseph is learning at this moment to lean wholly and completely on God. Not on what he feels, but on what he knows God to be like. I love how this idea is brought out in a series of, in a particular prayer, Valley of Vision, a a prayer of Puritans. It reads like this. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the Valley of Vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, we see, we, stars can be seen from deepest wells. Deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. We are called to trust in God at every moment. Just as Joseph was given the word of God, was given a revelation by God of what would certainly come to pass. And his faith in God was tested severely. 
every step from home. Every burn of the ropes that he that bound him. Every night he awoke in a foreign country, in a foreign home. Brother and sister, this is the this is what you and I must learn and be reminded of every day. For there are trials yet to come of which you and I do not know. Our brothers and sisters in in Christ there over in the Ukraine are experiencing horrors and difficulties that you and I, we wish and we pray and we hope we will never taste. But the same word that sustains us is the same word that sustains them now. We might flip that. The same word that they are finding that sustains them in so great a trial is the same word that will sustain you this week, this month, this year. It is the same God behind it all. Trust in Him. And friend, if you have never trusted in this God, this one who gives such gracious promises, this one who meets us in our deepest need, the one who has an answer for your sin and mine, the one alone who provides a deliverer, his own son who enters in the world, who was obedient every step of his life, and just as, Joseph, just as Joseph descended into Egypt, so Christ descended and took, our, took up our humanity here, becoming one of us. And as one of us, as our representative of all who trust in him, he bore our sins on the cross so that all who turn and submit to him in faith, Taste his joy. Taste God's forgiveness. And are welcomed in as God's sons and daughters. Look to Christ today. And just as countless Christians have found that God's word is true and trustworthy, is a lamp for our dark way, so you can and may as well. Look to Christ. Children, look to Christ. Do not wait till you are old and you have wasted years. Look to Christ now. Look to Christ. Let us pray. O Lord, you do meet us in the valley of vision. And it is there where we learn to trust you just as Joseph was forced to trust you. Oh, Father, we pray that you will so grip our hearts with your grace and glory. That you will so grip our hearts with your word. That whatever may come, however, wherever life leads, leads us, that we may be assured 
of your son's promise that you will never leave us. Oh God, work in us today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.